crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. My name's Matt Georges, and this is a special bonus episode of the podcast. As regular listeners will know, I only usually release one episode a month because, and this might surprise you, I get absolutely no income from Serendipity Soup, so I have to spend at least some time on my day job as an economist. But this month is an exception, and it's because I recently had a phone call out of the blue from my guest in this episode, Chris Preston. I interviewed Chris in September 2021 after we met at a campsite in Somerset. I don't know if any of you suddenly discovered the joys of enforced camping holidays during Covid times. Anyway, she was quite nervous about recording a podcast, but she decided to do so in the spirit of saying yes and more often. And some of you might recall uh, my episode with Chris Grimes, uh, where he talks about that kind of thing a bit as well. So check that out if you're interested. Anyway, um, Chris's story is amazing, and I was really pleased with her episode, but she decided she'd rather it didn't go live. Now, this happens with some guests, and while I said I thought it was a shame, it's of course her story and it's her decision. Then, suddenly, a couple of weeks ago, there was a phone call. Chris said she'd been driving her son to school and seen a house with the name Serendipity on the gatepost. It reminded her of the episode she'd recorded, and she realised that now was the time to get it out there. When asked why, she said that this is a make-or-break year for her, and she needs to get her story heard. To understand that, you should know that Chris is a chef, who has worked incredibly hard to start her own business, only to be blindsided by the pandemic. When I spoke to her in September, things were tough. Now they're even tougher, and this is, as she puts it, the last roll of the dice. So, she asked if I could squeeze in a special mid-month episode, and of course, I said yes. As I say, Chris is an amazing chef and businesswoman, Please do check out her YouTube channel, The Alternative Indian, to see some of her delicious recipes and thealternativeindian.com to see more of what she's up to. But she started her career as a conservation biologist, tracking wolves, tigers, gorillas and any other creature that made its home in remote and remarkably dangerous places. She then switched to become a civil servant working in London, because why wouldn't you? Then she switched again, moved to the west of England and set up her own restaurant, just as the pandemic hit. It won't come as a surprise to my regular listeners that as soon as I heard Chris talk about this weird, twisted, amazing career path around a campfire in Somerset, I had to ask her onto the podcast. There's so much more to say about Chris, but really that's the point of having the episode itself, isn't it? So I'll leave it there for now. Right, housekeeping. Chris was quite nervous doing this, so you'll find she talks fast and moves around a lot, which means there's a little bit of background noise, but hopefully nothing too distracting. Krish is also very open about her struggles with dyslexia and with depression, so, as ever, a warning that that subject matter is being covered, in case it's not what you want to hear about right now. There's only some very mild swearies in the verbal undergrowth, no F-bombs going off or anything like that. And, with that, I think we're ready to go. 
Time for a taste of Serendipity Soup. My name is Krish Preston. Krishma is how I get called when I'm in trouble. Krish is how I go by and I... Four years in, still don't consider myself a full-time chef, so I am. So I started out a random food business off the back of the passion, one for food, to my mum's drive for feeding family. It's always just been big family functions, mum's been in the kitchen, always cooking for people, whether it be weddings or Diwali or family get-togethers, weekend get-togethers, mum would do most of it. It's like, you know, 50, 60 people at a time. Um, <laughs> so that's how I grew up, was just always around family, big meals. So food has been intrinsic in my life. All my life I've been travelling. I've got to experience lots of different flavours and types of food and I just think there's so much out there. So you live in Somerset now? Yes I do yeah. Where um, have you been? You said you've been <laughs> traveling this whole time what's been going on? I was born in India but I was only born in India because of civil unrest in Tanzania when my parents lived out there. So mum mum and dad wanted me to have an Indian passport which became fortuitous because we had to leave Tanzania due to the coup back in the early 80s. I left Tanzania, went to India, lived there for a while, went to the States I think I can't remember whether we went back to India for a little bit or not, or whether we came straight here. We moved to London when I was six and a half. And then I've been travelling back and forth quite a lot all my life. So dad had done his O-levels back in the day at Chigwell. Even though he was born and brought up in Tanzania, he'd done his kind of schooling here and he had a brother here. So it was easy for him to come at time and settle because he had kind of dependence to be able to kind of do that. And then they started their own cash and carry and they worked there 40 odd years, seven days a week, nine to six. And Sunday afternoons were the only afternoons we got with our parents for many, many years. But that's what they did to make sure we got to where we were. Yeah, kind of it's the ethos of just keep going, just keep working. It will Something will happen, some, some opportunity will come up. And that's what they did. Is it the kind of immigrant mentality, which is just if you've got the get up and go to move country several times as your, yeah. your parents did, then... You've also got the get up and go to knuckle down and do that incredibly hard work. It's with the view of the next generation, isn't it? That you're always looking to say, well, if I do this, then that sets my kids up for something better. It's, it's an incredible mentality. And well, I get yeah. quite emotional thinking about it. You know, <laughs> it's, so, it's so hard. It's such hard work and so selfless. Dad's health has kind of been my driving force and it's also the thing that back in my mind because Dad had his first heart attack when he was 40 and I've just turned 40. Several heart attacks and a major stroke later he's still fighting and kicking and he's got a permanent defib attached. Who would have thought seven years down the line that that would be the case in medical probability? It's just wow. it's one of those things. Both parents are like medically had to retire. Like mum's turning 60 in December and both of them just completely have destroyed their bodies in order to do what they did and sorry getting a bit emotional um mm. me and my brother are completely different kettle of fish so I'm one of those hours doesn't matter how hard I work I it takes me a while for the benefits for people to see it or understand my way of thinking or and I am lazy. Hands up. It takes me. <laughs> I'm so lastminute.com. Just nuts. Um, part of me is I don't want to overwork myself. It's just, it's one of those things where I spent, well, I didn't have a restaurant for nine months. So I spent it sitting on my ass, just kind of worrying, going, what do I do now? Thinking about all the other things. But I am the black sheep. I had to be 
I'm quoting this in a air bubble kind of threatened, but also kind of motivated in the sense of if you don't pass these exams, we'll get you married off. Because I was lazy, I I struggled with language. I found English very difficult and I was only diagnosed with dyslexia at university doing my undergrad in my second year. I just found studying so hard. I had tutors, I had all sorts just to make sure I scraped my GCSEs and I scraped my A-levels. And my dad wouldn't let me take a year out in between the A-levels and going to uni because he was like, well, you're never going to go back. <laughs> and he knew what I was like. So at that moment in time, I hated the push, but it he didn't push me down a route. And I am ever forever grateful for that. As much as he pushed me, he was like, I don't care what you do. Just do something that you've got something to fall back on down the line. And I loved kind of environment and science. I did biology, chemistry and geography for my A-levels. And that kind of environmental sciences kind of encompassed the three. It's kind you of sound wind. incredibly lazy. Biology, chemistry, <laughs> and what was the other one? Geography. But, so but the lazy. Life, you know, but I'm competing. <laughs> like, if you look at it in terms of family mentality and how Asians work, results day is very much, my kid got 17 A-stars and they're going to Cambridge and they're doing medicine and they're doing, you know, whatever it is within the family that the cousins have done very, very, very well for themselves. We were in different points in our lives and we got different opportunities because of what my parents could do with us at that time. There's eight years difference and that that has played a bit factor in where we, how we ended up as kids and be extremely different people. Like we're very close, but we're extremely different people. And I'm, I'm also very different in the sense of like my family. Like I just didn't want to do the norm. I went off and applied for jobs working with gorillas in Nigeria that my grandfather in India had to phone me up and go, you're not taking that job. I don't, you have to come to India for your first wildlife job. You can't go to somewhere we have no connection with. That's how strong family connections were. They stopped me getting jobs or taking opportunities that were arising. But then I had to work out ways of doing what I wanted to do regardless of that and finding other opportunities that would fit their comfort zone, (laughs) if that makes sense. It does, yeah. I've recently got into a book and a website called Rebels at Work. It's all about people who try and change things and often that kind of grates a bit against their managers and and maybe their colleagues. The the word rebel, I'm not so keen on myself because I don't (laughs) see myself as a a rebel, you know, at all. But this idea of Oh, what if we what if we try this? Is this would this yeah. work? And it sounds as though you've had something similar where you've you've said, well, maybe this isn't for me. But what about this over here? And people have gone, uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely pushed boundaries. I spent almost seven eight years traveling India in the states completely on my own. They seven were some, eight years. Yeah, like I'd come back <laughs> and do sort of two or three months contract temp jobs in London. Wait reply for the next contract position and I'd go off and do a year 18 months in the middle of nowhere often with no water no electricity and no phone contact it was a hard life back without decent internet (laughs) which is (laughs) we're very dependent on so I got my undergrad in 2003 and then I went off I got a random job working this is when I applied for the job in Nigeria with gorillas and I didn't and my grandfather phoned me up and I was in Manchester working for the Prince's Trust at the time, doing a voluntary job. And my grandfather had a go at me at a payphone because I had to phone him up for a payphone. And just like, you can't take this job, come to India. So I was like, right, fine, I'll find a job in India. So I got the opportunity to work with an amazing, amazing boss who ended up being a bit of a mentor. But he gave me the opportunity to work with lions out in India. And it's the only population of lions in the wild 
outside Africa. So it was just, yes, mum came out with me out to India just because it was my second job and the first one in terms of traveling on my own. I ended up crying. I was so lost in Delhi, completely on my own. I need someone to come out with me for the first time and then I can, I'll be fine. So she came out to Mumbai and then I was like, right, I've sorted the trains out and it was not a problem. I turned up and I spent six months working with lions on foot. I had to start my life away. I had three assistants. Oh. I was helping two PhD students out at different parts of the national park. All of it predominantly on foot. No weapons apart from the, the sides or the machine, like a little thing to cut down branches if you're walking because it was all predominantly on foot. You couldn't, you couldn't get off the paths in terms of the vehicles that we had. So I learned to drive in India on that job. And then I learned to drive a motorbike in, a, in the next job, which was also with the same boss. And I did uh, night monitoring on wolves in the desert. <laughs> of course you did. Of course. Yeah, of course I did. Why yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah, but, at night. yeah, yeah. Uh, it was looking at home range patterns and seeing how far they travel, depending on how much light of the moon there was. So full moon, their home ranges were like 200 kilometers and then no moon is just like they kind of stayed around. So it was really interesting because they were GPS collared to track a family and kind of learn their pattern over sort of three or four months. Those were interesting jobs. They didn't have any modern facilities at all <laughs> I had to pump water for one of them and that was rare because it was so hard just couldn't be bothered after you've done 12 days on your feet looking for lions or tracking them or doing plant surveys or whatever it was picking up poo and send back to the lab for analysis whatever it was like it was just it was random it was hot it was sticky and oh my gosh it was fun that set me off on a path I wanted to give a go I didn't know where it would lead me so I, I did that for a year and a bit and then I came back and I got a temp job working at the Royal College of Surgeons in London and I randomly helped put surgeons qualifications through the system it, but I didn't know at the time I was actually working my now-to-be husband um, so that's how we met was in an office job at a temp job and I applied for my master's without telling anyone because it was something that I didn't expect to get on it was an international course so I was going up against people who'd been in the industry doing conservation for well, several years who'd built up a name for themselves built up a really good reputation I'm going to put the application in and see what happens on the tone and I got on it it was just the most bizarre thing. So it was at the DICE, the Doral Institute of Conservation Ecology at the University of Kent. And I was one of five Brits on the course and there was 25 of us. One of them is working in Rwanda, is now working for the government, saving mountain gorillas. There's a guy working for WWF for tigers. The connections that I made and the contacts and the experience gained from that course was intense. It was I've never had to complain about noise levels. Like it was an intense course. We were all four days a week, nine to two lectures and then four bits of coursework and exams. This is not what I like. You know what I mean? I just went from being quite lazy to, oh my God, this is quite a challenge that I wasn't expecting. It propelled me to kind of go, yes, this is what I want to do. And I got the opportunity from there to like work with lots of different organisations. So my master's was looking through the other bits of work that I'd done with the lions and stuff. I'd got the opportunity to learn about the vulture decline. And I got a bit of funding from RSPB and BirdLife International and through the university itself. Like they started up a vulture breeding centre. So I had to fight to go in there and look at how they were managing the species, they, the birds that they had already in captivity. They've only just released their first captively born vulture this year, um, which is like, you know... Wow. It's taken so long. There's a species that is hard to hard to breed, especially within the captive world. It, and they're the only things in the natural environment that is keeping it clean. So everything from rabies is on a massive rise to waterborne diseases. There's nothing in the environment that is going to clean up the mass amount of carcasses than 
the vultures that was my masters and from there I've gone on to work with hornbills I went to work in the states for a while in Utah I I worked for an organization called Hawkwatch International and they were based in Utah and it was meant to be a three-month contract so I got a 90-day visa as a tourist because I was volunteering and so I was being paid a stipend and it wasn't enough to be taxed I had my tickets booked and all that kind of stuff like to come back but it also meant that I was also very much stuck out there for 90 days because I didn't have the money to come back any earlier. So the job requirements were two teams surveying probably about 1,500 catalogued nest sites in an area of Wales. That is very, very much remote. <laughs> so it was northwest corner of Utah and it ended up being me, two other ladies who had already started the project two weeks before I turned up. So they'd been in, they were just getting the bearings of the area and so we had got given a government of natural resources truck and it was filled with big white boxes of files and just all these catalogues of nest sites descriptions coordinates tons of maps and a gps they were like off you go see what nests survival which ones aren't it's fine catalog any new nests that you can find and we were concentrating on six species and we just did the most remote most bizarre survey area in the world the two girls I ended up being their kind of second on the project for the areas that are the most remote and most dangerous and I mean most dangerous you don't see people for like four or five days out of those three three months I had 16 flat tires my dad had a really bad stroke in London my grandfather in India passed away I was on my own driving down a straight track looking for birds of prey because that's what I was surveying doing cruise control at like 26 27 but a mountain goat or a deer or something shot out and all I could do was slam my brake because it was the gut reaction of slamming my brake fishtailed it just completely lost control landed driving that way landed back on my wheels that way but for the listener so, there Chris has just made a, a sign that indicates 180 degree turn is that yeah. right yeah <laughs> essentially yeah 360 in the air to land back facing the other way on my wheels all I could remember as I knew like because I fishtailed it thought I'd got it back in like some sort kind of line I burst three tires so I just there was no getting actual control back onto it and where I flipped it it luckily flipped passenger side because it just crushed the whole thing two propane tanks for cooking two spare gas canisters in the back for fuel everything all over the road a double cab truck and it was just full of equipment from spotting scopes to cameras to files to water bottles to everything like loads of heavy stuff and all I could think was get my head down over the thing and just pray to god that I'm gonna be all right because it was just nothing I could do at that point it's just lucky it went passenger side and not driver side because it was so smashed in that I I had to the only door I could get out out of was the driver side the passenger side because the driver side was up against the ridge of the road there was a bank I couldn't I couldn't get out that way the windscreen was in but it was all cracked up and stuff and half out cut myself trying to get out of that so the only thing I could think of was like kick the passenger door open and luckily you know fuel down the bottom sparking everywhere luckily nothing went off but I managed to get out this car and I was right where's the phone and where's the GPS because I've no idea where I am in terms of location to like phone anyone I I need to be able to contact someone I hadn't spoken to the office for like four or five days I hadn't had a phone signal and it took me a while to get the bits and I was like the the GPS that I had working that would work it would only work when it's plugged into the car so I managed to get it plugged in got all the like the fuel leaks and stuff out the way managed to get this thing plugged in wrote down my coordinates ended up hiking up this mountain to get a phone signal 
to be the only person I could get hold of was the director of the company at the time. And it was American Mother's Mother Mothering Sunday. He was like, Where are you? So I gave him my coordinates. He was like, Right, stay where you are, but it's gonna take me like five or six hours to come and get you. This is the situation. I need to get home, I need to get my stuff, and I need to come to you. But it's like I was so far from anywhere. Like it it was just that's how far I went away from like Salt Lake City I was, where the the, the company was based. And this is like late afternoon. <laughs> so I was like, right, tidy up the road. I can't see anything from there's there's no lights at all. So I've just got this big toolbox action packer and I've sat on it with an emergency black blanket around to average game. So I'll just wait here then. Like but he turned up about two o'clock in the morning. Utah was eye opening in terms of my limits in that sense. Cause it was I've never worked completely on my own. <laughs> like I've always worked with a team and being stuck somewhere where it was just completely on my own for days at a time. Yeah. After the accident, I refused to go back out without a sat phone. There is no money in conservation, especially for conservation on the ground. And then the situations people are put into because there isn't the staff or there isn't there isn't the money to buy the resources like a sat phone. Yeah. As you've been talking, I've been thinking to myself, I keep thinking about you describing yourself as lazy. And yet these none of these things seem like the actions of someone who's lazy. Where does that come from? I see myself lazy because I, I guess it's just as a kid... My, my parents were just like, oh, you're just lazy. You're just lazy. Come on, get on with it. It was always, you could do better, push yourself. I leave things until I really have to do them. I have no issues with actually employing myself and getting it done. But it's that getting that started, the motivation. It's taken me a while and I still have that internal voice going, you can do better. You're not doing as well as X, Y and Z. And a lot of the family sometimes feels like it's keeping up with the Kardashians. And that's a great way to live life, but that's never been my way of living life. So actually being out of London and being out of the pressure, not only for myself, but for my husband and for my little one, it's such a nice way of living. And then it's taken my dad a long time and my mom to get that approval. You have made the right choices in life because as far as they were concerned, I never did. Yeah. They were always choices and they were okay choices but they weren't the best choices in their opinion so I tried to do the whole good thing I tried I went to university I I did the BSc I went back on my own volition to a master's more to prove a point but but also because I wanted to do it it was one of the first things in my life where I've gone I found something that I love to do I've got a project idea I'm going to see if I can do it it was for nobody else but me Mm. And that was what, 20, I was 24, 25, and that took a long time for me to go, I've got the courage to do this, and actually, I should be able to do this. And then, again, going from a very charity background, I was never an academic, even though I've got a master's. Like, I've had the opportunity a couple of times to do a PhD, but I'm not an academic. It's not the route I want to take. So I randomly happened to end up in Ofsted, and I went in, and it was great. There was a whole ethos to become sustainable, and that's I found a position that I went in as a temp, and I was like, this is good. I can do something that I I can make an impact within civil service and then impact loads of other people. And it's an education. So perfect. there's connections and it was all research based. So there were loads of things that tra- transferable skills that I could use in my background. I got this temp job and the, during this temp job I happened to, uh, I'm a smoker as much as people hate it, hate it, but I happened to be outside in London in Farrington having a cigarette in between contract. It was an alleyway and the next thing I know, this guy's come up on a bike and he's gone, hey, Chris. And I'm like, 
you know me, but I don't know you. <laughs> and it transpired to be Will, my now husband. So he bought a bike in London, got completely lost, happened to cycle down the alleyway that I was in. And he had a pollution mask on, he had sunnies on, he had a beanie on. There was like no face recognition at all. So he's like, obviously he's gone, I'm, I'm Will, don't I? Like, you know, I mean, so we had a conversation. We decided to go for a drink. And so we kind of struck up a conversation and I'd, I tried the whole, let's find a suitable boy that my parents are going to approve of. And it never worked out. But I was also the black sheep. You know, my first boyfriend at university was Muslim. A big taboo. That went down really badly. My second boyfriend was Irish. That also went down really badly. I've never pe- played the role of I'm going to do the right thing or I'm just going to follow this route. I, at that point, but I'd also done the whole, I'll try and find someone that my parents are going to approve of or, you know, feel that is right for me in their eyes. And yeah, it didn't work very well. So I... And was this and, Will? Sorry, I, I no, were you saying that, that, that you, you saw Will because you thought he was going to be somebody your parents would approve of? Or, no, it, no, or no, no. Or you let go of that and said, actually, told you, that, yeah. So yeah, when I'm we going to see Will because I like him. Yeah, so we kind of, we just were friends. It was There was nothing, we were catching up. It was a summer, I wasn't meant to be in London very long. You know, it was like, oh, you know, hey, how are you doing? We'd sent the odd, through the years, I think it'd been like four years since we'd seen each other, sent the odd email, like birthday and Christmas, as you do, you know, keep in touch. But it just happened to be fortunate that we bumped into each other, like on the most random five minute slot you can get of a day. So we'd met up for drinks over the summer and I was I still hadn't got my next contract. And the, the role that I was doing in Ofsted was becoming permanent. So I was like, well, pay's not bad. It's better than conservation because, you know, I've been working for peanuts for years. So I took the role. And in taking that role, my life changed down a track that I wasn't expecting. I ended up being a civil servant for nine odd years. That was never, ever the plan. So we've just gone from talking about some really quite perilous situations in Utah. Yeah. And now you're working for Ofsted. Yeah. Can you glue those two very, very different things together for us? How on earth did you end up going from one to the other? So when I was when I used to come back from my contract work abroad, I'd always get a, straight into a temp job with a temp agency. I would be in lots of different temp roles. And after Utah, I did another role in India on hornbills. And that was uh, <laughs> just just over a year. And then I came back and that's when I got this job in London as a temp. And it was the next role was in Scotland and I went up and it didn't work out. So within a day, I moved back from Ayrshire. I left a job, we went up to Scotland in Ayrshire, went into work and decided it wasn't for me. So came back to London. To yeah. make a move that big and just to be like, nope, nope, actually no. That's incredible. What was it about that that didn't appeal? It was on a mining site, was doing bird nest surveillance with some farmers and there's too much negativity already within the project to try and fix within a short period of time. I think you need to go with your gut. And I've always been a very cut overhead type of person. I got a job in the civil service because I said, yeah, and took an opportunity. It's got me to a position where we could afford to pay for our weddings. We had two and buy a house and we've had a kid. I always thought if I'm going to have a kid, I'm going to raise it in the jungle somewhere. This is the lifestyle that I was planning to lead. It was everything changed very quickly and I wasn't expecting it to just because I said, yes, the position that I was doing that was temporary becoming permanent and not mm. intending to stay there permanently. What was it about the, the Softstead job that appeals so much? Because you clearly have a very, very 
passionate relationship with conservation and with wild animals. And yet you're then moving into a role in a London civil service department. What was it that appealed about that role? I think for me at the time, it was just a little bit of stability. I've been travelling since I was a kid through growing up. My parents used to ship us off to India for some holidays on our own to the work being completely on my own. I think at that point I was just, I'd been in London for sort of four months. So I was quite enjoying being in London. Like I still had friends, mum and dad. Since leaving for university, I've never really permanently moved back. So it was always like, well, I'm here. Let's see how it goes. And it was a job that gave me some benefits for the first time in my life. I just never had any of that stuff. And the role itself, it was working for the, at the time, I think he was the lead for sustainability development within Ofsted. So not only within sort of the business structure, but also within the education system and looking at how we incorporate sustainability in ecology and all that kind of stuff. And so I I kind of like the idea of that. And maybe Mm. where I wasn't an academic, maybe that kind of research angle of it, I really liked. I liked the analytical side of it. You know, so my roles changed within the first couple of years. I went from being an assistant to the sort of the lead for sustainability to becoming research and insight officer to becoming like loads of different things became a PA became an EA executive assistant to a director so over sort of five or six years I accumulated a lot of knowledge across the organization whether it was business management or looking at how school reports influence what we're doing within the systems and I kind of just like the challenge because it was again something completely new that I'd never really thought about in my life but actually it's really important. I think it was the team of people I worked with and I think that is so so important and it was great the vibes were great there was a lot of encouragement they were get given a task-based project you do that task it's acknowledged you carry on and they were all remote workers it was great and then I guess it happens a lot within the civil service things change quite drastically overnight sometimes and I happened to be in one of those teams that changed very drastically it was just one of those things that happened and I was one of the only seven in the team that was left behind and I didn't have a role because I had no team and because we were in the position of moving to Somerset I had health issues that become apparent so we were I was just trying to manage a load of things and I put in the paperwork to become home-based. So I then fell pregnant, decided to go on mat leave, and in the process of filing the mat leave paperwork, found out that none of my paperwork for home-based working had ever been processed three years earlier. That was just pre-maternity, and so I went off on maternity quite stressed out. So I went back from mat leave, and it was like, well, no, you're expected to come back into the office three days a week. Well, I live two and a half hours commute away. Me to come to London three days a week is just not viable, because by the time I've included my travel time, I'm taking two days off of flexible working. I've now got us a house, I've got a mortgage, I've got a kid, and they're making my life really difficult to try and balance all of this stuff. And home-based working was not viable. So there, at which point I just would rather just take the redundancy. I'd had enough of sort of the mental fight of trying to keep going, working from home and having the little one at home, who I sent off to daycare nine hours a day at nine months so that I could work from home in a job I didn't want to do. Just did not feel right. And I got offered redundancy or I had to apply for that job. I just, I had to at that point take that redundancy. Where is my next stone going to get thrown? And I didn't know where that was at the time, but it wasn't there. And actually getting the strength to be able to say, I need to shut this door and I need to shut this door now, took a long time. Lessons and the friendships and the experiences through that, through those nine years, 
completely invaluable having the opportunity across so many different roles from business management to annual account I think at the end the the impact that I want to make isn't big level policy and that's great if that is an adjunct to what I'm doing but that isn't my focus so yeah I I took the redundancy and said thank you very much it's just such a shame when a job that by the sound of it you really enjoyed to begin with it. it stops being a source of energy and starts to sap your energy instead serendipity right that's what we're talking about here because that's led you on to something fantastic in my view so so what is it that the alternative indian does yeah so it started off serendipitous i can't say the word (laughs) (laughs) meeting a gentleman called barry down here who had a restaurant it was a bistro and it was the first place that we went to as a date night once we bought the house seven years ago we got to know barry through the years of living down here went to him for lots of advice from Oh, we found out he does carpets on the side. As they came and did our carpets in our house, recommended us our plumber. At the time where I was being made redundant, we'd noticed the shutters had been shut for a while. So I just phoned them up. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I would like to have an experiment with possibly cooking for people. Do you fancy a chat? And so that's what we did. And over the years, it's something me and the husband have talked about. He's been great. He's always just been like, do what you want to do. There's no pressure. I will support you regardless. I think that's why we work so well together. And he still calls it my business four years down the line. He's he's now part of it and he's working for me, but he's still like, this is your business. So I went and spoke to Barry and I learned that Barry's wife had cancer. The plan was she would like to come back and restart the restaurant and she would help me to get to where I would like to go if that made sense so mm-hmm. i had an idea for doing sort of indian food and at the time there wasn't in west coca can you it, say where west coca is for people who don't know somerset southwest england so an hour west from stonehenge i went in looked at the kitchen and it was ideal so he had a, he had a kitchen set up and he basically just gave me an amazing offer the deal with him and his wife was he ran the front and she did the cooking in the back but they only open three evenings a week and for me with the little one having done I suppose in nine to five, even though it was never a nine to five, Monday to Friday, three evenings a week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday sounded ideal to give something a go because it gave me the opportunity to spend some time with the little one and still do some work over the evenings and during the day, the prep and stuff. So we got a launch date of November and this was like kind of October and we were like, right, six weeks, I'll get all my paperwork done. And he was like, What year was this? Sorry, it was 2018. So we got all the paperwork in place and then before we opened the doors, Barry's wife Val passed away. It was a really difficult time because there was talks of Barry at some point retiring anyway, whether he would do it then or not. And then I can, would have completely understood if that's what he had decided. But he mm. decided just to carry on with the opportunity that we've made a plan, Val had agreed it. Let's give it a year, six months and reassess. And actually, fortuitously, I think it was the best move for both our mental health. Actually, for him, it was it became a social entity. Like he always had staff in to run the bar he was always there as a manager if there was an issue but he was essentially just taking a back seat but for his mental health and my mental health because I'd just left a grueling kind of situation where I was pretty much done I didn't really know how to go from civil service into food I did a trial night at the beginning of November 2018 and I packed the restaurant it was only small on full we could fit 35 36 people so it wasn't very big so for me it was great it was manageable because it was just me running the food business we were two separate businesses out of one premises so I did anything to do with food anything to do with drinks was his and we just had the same site and it worked really well for us so I filled out the restaurant and did a stress test as it were what would happen if I suddenly had a full restaurant and would I be able to do it and I did without 
killing anyone or myself and kept all my fingers. And I was like, well, this is actually quite fun. <laughs> and it just kind of went from there. So we did the restaurant and it was just starting to pick up. Made a bit of a loss in my first year. But as food businesses go, not bad. And I'm only open three days a week, so can't complain too much. Mm. And with the restaurant, the ethos of local, ethical, sustainable started. And because I was only open three days a week, I would only order food that I needed. Anything at the end of those three days, because it was limited of what I was producing and stuff, would go to the fire crew in Yeovil. And I'd cook them up a little meal of a Saturday evening. And I'd be like, here you go, have a meal. And then I did the tiffins, sort of stainless steel Indian food boxes. So I refused to do plastic takeaways. And that was like a big thing for me. So it was like a £10 deposit on the tiffins. And you take it away. And then as and when you drop it back, either you can exchange it for a new one, or you just come back and ask for your deposit back. And it was like a really simple system. There was no tagging, no monitoring, no nothing. It was just like, well, they paid the deposit. I've covered my costs. If I lose a tiffin and they keep it, as long as they use it because it's stainless steel, great. Mm. one less bit of plastic in the world and it worked really well and through the restaurant in the years that I've lived here I first time I felt like Somerset was home it was the connections with the community and the friendship and then Covid was something obviously nobody was expecting and Covid hit us massively just because of the size of the premises I didn't get any of the grants didn't get any funding support we were too new a business to qualify for anything i tried to keep going carried on takeaways on a saturday night through the first lockdown for the local community and i also started my free meals i upped those so i started feeding the vulnerable within the village and had loads of support from the village in terms of like the deliveries and like finding out who wanted what and stuff so i started getting donations your reaction to your restaurant being closed is to give away free food (laughs) this is madness what are you doing well i just wanted to carry on doing something my whole point was i love feeding people and i started it because because my mum's love for feeding people. And suddenly, we're not having the opportunity to feed people. I was a bit like, what the hell am I going to do? Like, I'm just starting to build something here. And the only way that I keep going was doing takeaways once a week. And they, you know, I wasn't getting many orders because everyone was in the same financial situation of no money suddenly. But all this stuff that he's using, I don't know when I'm going to get to open again. Dry store stuff, like tons of it. But even some of that's got, you know, shelf lives and it could be sitting there for six months. I just don't know stuff I had in the freezers, stuff that I don't want to throw away. I just don't see the point of any waste. And so I started cooking the meals. And through doing the free meals, I just, I upped it to the ambulance crew, fire station, to the, I did a couple of drop-offs at the maternity ward at Yeovil when my little one was born, um, as well as the A&E department at Yeovil Hospital. At points, I was getting donations where I could feed 130 people a night for nothing. Again, it was out of my own pocket. And I was just like, I'm just going to do this and see what I can do to help people out. And it was the community generosity and then friends and family from around the world who've just gone, actually, you're doing something really cool here. Here's a couple hundred quid, which meant that I can do another two days worth of feeding, you know, 100 people, one batch cooking. It got to a point where it was just it was self-sustaining and growing. And then when news of reopening came about, we were looking at the numbers and we had lengthy discussions, me and Barry. And, and I think it was for him probably one of the hardest decisions he's made was to close the doors on his restaurant because it's always been his restaurant. Yeah. It was his baby yeah. for 30 odd years, like him and his wife's business. And I know for him, making that choice was hard, but it was absolutely the right thing at the right time. In hindsight, again, like at the time I was just like, what has he done? What am I going to do? What we, How are we going to work this out? But I left on a high. Like I had so much community support. He made the decision. We made the announcement that we were shut the next week. It was that quick. And... It was just that having that flexibility, because I think actually if I'd reopened, 
the numbers wouldn't have allowed the same atmosphere. The restaurant, the vibes in the restaurant, the positivityness of the place, I think, would have diminished. He's still in the background, egging me on, providing me guidance, mentoring me. And I think that I found that the most beneficial thing out of all of it is just having the support from him and the community of like West Coker and East Coker. The patrons that either supported Barry originally or then have come along to support me. It's just been absolutely mind-blowing that it's kind of exploded, especially since COVID and going back. I'm like catering more numbers than I was ever in the restaurant now. And it's not something I expected to so quickly happen. It's great. It's great. And you, you, you're serving more people through pop-up, your, your pop-up yeah. business, is that right? With hospitality, those the businesses that have survived are those that have adapted as much as possible. It was like, well, I can do a bit of catering, that's private. I can do some private chefing. There was a local campsite that opened up at the end of the first lockdown, which is so I started doing tiffins to them on a Friday. So campers turn up, they're an eco campsite. And they have the opportunity to have a hot meal and there's no plastic involved, again, using the tiffin. So so I've got a couple of cafes, a hotel I do a pop-up at, and then various other bits of work that are coming through, loads of different channels. And it's just the opportunities because I've just been speaking to friends and they're like, so where do you see this business in five years? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> in the last six months, it's we've got a horse box out there. We spent five grand on it. I've only just ripped out the internal wall to be able to do something on it to convert into a commercial kitchen to carry on that side of the project. Like we don't have any funding. Husband left his job nine months ago. I need help. And the only way I'm going to get help is if you leave your job. And thankfully he did. He's now joined my business. And without him, I couldn't have done what I've done in the last six months. I just honestly couldn't. He's remodeled the kitchen three times. We've built a storeroom out the back, out of the end of a double garage that wasn't there six months ago he does my branding he's done my website he's done childcare. he's he's been my little horrible state but my little bitch for the last like nine months or a year like (laughs) he's given tasks and he just has to go and do them we don't plan on it being long term but at the moment that was like the best thing but we've never worked together you know and that in itself working with someone living with someone and having a five-year-old in the house has definitely been interesting yeah may 2021 we reopened without the restaurant cooking from home and that in itself is a challenge, especially because I try and do gluten-free, dairy-free as much as I can within my food. And my little one loves bread. So <laughs> having him at home for six weeks and just being like, you can't come into the kitchen. I'm really sorry, love. It's been a challenge. It's incredible what you've done. Let's just zoom out a second. So you, you've had this really bad experience at work just after you've had your baby. And then you're like, OK, dust myself off. I'm going to start a whole new career you've obviously cooked before but you you know it's a career now it's making money yeah Yeah. with somebody who just rung up I know you know him but you've rung him out of the blue and said should we do this and he's like yeah right you know (laughs) I'm sure the conversation was a bit more technical than that it really wasn't it wasn't that (laughs) much (laughs) and then gosh Barry's partner you know um was ill and then passed away covid the restaurant closing I mean if in one way you could look at that and say god that is a if you don't mind me saying, a litany of disasters. It is really, but the way yeah. that you just presented it to me, it's, oh, you know, there was a bit of a <laughs> bump in the road and then I just kind of did this and I did this. So amazing that the kind of positivity that you've got for adapting to what are incredibly challenging circumstances. I think what hit home is I have two options. So it's, it's a fallback to conservation, which doesn't pay much and 
so as much as I've done stuff with London Zoo and London Wildlife Trust in the UK I want to be working abroad so go back to conservation go back to a nine-to-five with one of me and my husband working in London full-time living in a flat that I grew up in that I never ever want to go back to live in personally or just keep going we've had this conversation a lot what else are we going to do they are a rock because we cannot Mm. afford to carry on living here unless we make this business work and that's been the driving force to be honest having worked for myself for the last four years for the first time in my life and I know why my parents did it now I don't want to go work for anyone else I want to be able to make the decision to say no but I also want to make the decision to say, yes, I'm going to give it a go. Whether it's the right one or not, but it's it's on me. It's not on anybody else. I need to take a week off work. I won't schedule any work for that week. I've got that power to do that. I don't have to go and grovel for two days off because my little one's got a hospital appointment that I need to work around. It's just those little bits of benefit. It's just I never really considered until I started working for myself and having Whereas actually now becoming a caterer or a private chef, whatever, I take bookings as and when I want. There were weeks over the summer holidays where for three weeks solid, I did not see my little one apart from in the morning for breakfast. And that was it. And that's the summer holidays because I was flat out catering. But then I had the opportunity to go, well, I'm not booking anything for the last week of the summer holidays. I'm going to take it off because I want to spend time with my five-year-old. That flexibility yeah, yeah. is just something that I've never had. I missed out on so many friends get together as a husband will take the little one to Newbury because I can't go on because I'm cooking in the restaurant. I can't just take a weekend off when you've got a restaurant and the bar's mm. open as well. So in hindsight, losing the restaurant has actually opened up a whole new world of flexibility that I hadn't even considered. The serendipitous of life. So I went along to a conference in India and it was a diaspora conference. So loads of Indians who grew up abroad. It was a youth delegation and there was I think there was about 45 of us in two groups but I got a phone call from a a Canadian friend who was part of the same delegation and she was like so Chris I've got a friend called Rob I was like okay he's a wildlife biologist too and he's worked with lions and he's doing a new project can can you give you a call I was like yeah I don't know how much I can help me I haven't worked with lions for 20 years but I'll have a chat with him and so we got chatting and this was probably about two and a half years ago now we got chatting and I have now become basically like a part-time consultant advisor on this project so his project is he would love to be the first person to be able to reintroduce lions into the wild within a national park system but essentially wild from rehabilitation and that has never happened with big cats really you surprised me i i assumed that happened all the time no No. obviously not no especially from baby to be able to train them up as as a youngster to have the skill set to be able to then be released into the wild is not happened to date so they ended up meeting up he's gone over given a couple of presentations out to the wildlife institute of india on the project and he's getting hopefully getting the funding for what he wants to do but he's in kenya in Kora at the moment trying to get this project off the ground so he's now like building his links and you know i get a phone call every now and then like, krish i just need your advice on something all i know is connections and random chat but it seems to be enough to mm. be able to give people a thought out of the box i'm quite good at thinking out the box but yeah, so we, we've been on and off talking for two and a half years. We've got contacts in place. And then one day I'm hoping that I can go out and go and see this project become fruition because he's been working on it solidly for like so long. Who would have thought a random phone call from a random friend would have led to me still working in conservation this many yeah. years at, down the line? 
I love the idea of you just putting down whatever you're frying at that particular point <laughs> and just quickly taking a call on line conservation and then and then back to the, the roti or, or whatever it might be. <laughs> just like, well, yeah, of course I just switched yeah. from my role as lion conservation consultant to um, chef. <laughs> it's just, it's great. It's really difficult. I really don't know what direction any of it's going to go in. And the YouTube thing, again, it was it was the back of, well, I'm sitting at home, I'm not doing anything, so I'll produce some content. And my husband, who is my YouTube editor, constantly is just like... <laughs> Poor Will, what doesn't Will do? <laughs> Blimey. Honestly, he does everything. I can't. I couldn't have asked for a better husband. Oh. Because as much as I'm enjoying the cooking side of it, I'd like to do other bits of the business that I haven't really explored. You know, the youtube stuff. But it's, it's the time to do those things. Mm. And it's where mm. to prioritise your time, because time's limited. Could throw me in any direction I don't know. And I'm open to it. If a bank said to you, can you show us your business plan for the next five years? You'd be like, the business plan is to be open to new ideas, right? (laughs) Well, I'm writing one at the moment, actually, funnily enough. Um, So I've got the horse box out there. I'm going to apply for a bounce back loan. So with the horse box, I fell in love with the shape of it, the colour of it. It's there. It's cost me money. It's sitting on my drive. I've got a vision in my head and I want to build this vision. could go down a rabbit hole, but at the moment it's putting that business plan together and just going well actually these are the avenues that I can carry on this is if I do this this is what my income is going to be if it's going to be at the moment I don't know because you know if we end up in another lockdown a partial lockdown everything changes again I think nobody has any idea what's going to happen in hospitality and I think that's the scariest thing you don't realize unless you're in the industry and it's, it just isn't the staffing chefs are in demand chefs have left the industry it, it's scary and I feel really fortuitous that I don't have the restaurant anymore it's actually a really big pressure ease in terms of money that paying the bills paying an extra mm. rental property mm. it's if I get that business plan together and I get a bounce back loan I can get the horse bounce done it's still my property. Once I've spent that investment, I've done it. The question I always ask people on this podcast is, is how would you define success? And I'm really, I'm, I can't wait for this one. How would you define success, Chris? Honestly, a roof of your head, food on the table and friends and family around you. That is literally, that's my definition of success. Having all the money in the world is great, but success isn't a money thing it isn't anything else it's having somewhere safe to call home there's been so many places I've worked in especially in India where I've worked with communities who don't have anything yet this the happiest people I've ever met in my life they're the ones that will offer you whatever they've got in their house to make sure that you're okay and I just think that in itself that success if you can give up whatever little you have to somebody else you're successful in yourself there is no measure of that financially or in any other means it's just be a good person let karma have its way and just be happy things might not always work like work out how you want things are super stressful most of the time but it's those little wins and I think you've just got to keep just going what was my win for today and what Mm. have I learned from today what can I take away and make better and I think that's it it's just if you can do that once a week at least and just go have I made a difference to someone to my life to somebody I love yes or no and that's pretty successful I think. You mentioned karma impression I get from speaking to you is is you've made your own karma quite a lot of the time I suppose that's what karma is isn't it yeah. it's this idea that you give something and then something comes back to you in an unexpected way yeah. and that it feels like maybe that's what happened for example with giving food away because mm. you know I don't know you very well but I can tell from your personality and, and, and the sort of passions that you have that you wouldn't have done that simply to get 
some PR or whatever. You were doing that for genuine reasons. Yeah. And yet, lo and behold, these things circle around and some people are donating to help you and, and you, you know, your reputation grows and people hear about you and so on. Yeah. So that's quite an interesting kind of way of looking at it, I think. Yeah, I, just, I think the universe has a way of just giving back. Honestly, I think there's a lot of p- good people out there in a lot of unfortunate circumstances. I think not everyone takes the time to either sit back and listen or understand or put themselves in a position where get down to what makes that person tick. And I quite like doing that. So whether it's through work or through a conversation or, you know, work out what makes someone thrive. Like, how can you help someone out? I just think that's so important. It's been really inspiring for me to hear how you put the nine to five to one side and found something that gives you so much pleasure and and joy, albeit with times of stress in there as well. But yeah, thanks so much for your time, Chris, for taking time out. I really appreciate it. Thank you. No, thank you so much. It's been absolutely awesome. It's just, again, serendipitously didn't expect to ever get asked to record a podcast. Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to Chris for her time and bravery in recording this episode and allowing it to be published. I think you'll agree it was the right decision, and I reckon she might be the first guest I ask on for a second serving in a year or so's time to see how things have gone for her. Let me know if you agree, or perhaps I'm just talking to myself during the outro, who knows. Anyway, thanks also, as ever, to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover artwork, and for the occasional bit of artistry to help me get some traction on LinkedIn. Particular thanks to my long-suffering editor Anna Gunn, who had to do quite a bit of work to cut this episode down, because Chris and I covered an awful lot of ground and ended up going way over time. Thanks also to Acast for hosting the podcast, and of course, to you for listening. Remember, if you think you, or someone you know, could add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, get in touch. You can email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com, message me on LinkedIn, or tweet me using the handle at soupserendipity. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for another serving.